addressing mental health is a stated priority for Mayor Brandon Johnson and Governor J.B. Pritzker, too. From a push to reopen mental health clinics in Chicago to dealing with student trauma in Illinois. But one thing getting in the way is a major shortage of mental health workers in the state. There are only an estimated 13.8 providers for every 10,000 Illinois residents. Now, later on in the program, we'll talk about ways to grapple with this shortage. But first, we need to better understand why it exists in the first place. Jen McGowan-Tomkey is COO of NAMI Chicago. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And she joins us now to discuss. Welcome to Reset, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. So how long have we been experiencing a shortage of mental health workers, Jen? The mental health workforce shortage um, goes back several years, many years, um, and we it existed at a crisis level even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic um, for a variety of reasons related to the um, reimbursement or um, pay for mental health work workers um, for, from an investment perspective as well as from an incentivizing perspective for um, coming into the workforce. Um, but what we all know is that um, this crisis continues in terms of the need for mental health workers um, well into the pan- pandemic and beyond. What are some of the biggest drivers, you think? I think there are several. Um, as a workforce, um, the the mental health um, mental health workforce is complex. There are a number of different services that are needed, kind of within the spectrum, from prevention to ongoing treatment to crisis. Mm-hmm. So the workforce isn't as simple as just a psychiatrist or a therapist. Um, there are many folks that make up this space. And it, all of those professions need to be built from an education perspective, from a pipeline perspective, into a sustainable, um, a sustainable uh, job and sustainability for folks who are actually in those roles. And that really comes with resources, the mm-hmm. ability to pay um, to pay professionals what they need to do to do the job and also to pay um, organizations that employ them to be able to grow with the needs that are growing in the community. So if you had to sum this up, I mean, would you say it's an issue of an, an aging workforce or difficulty retaining staff? I think the retention is um, the, the stronger issue here. I think what we know is that this is challenging work. It has been for a long time, and it continues to be challenging with the level of acuity um, of need for mental health services. And so without strong um, retention and opportunities to address the burnout that exists in this field, um, we'll continue to lose folks in a workforce that we need to grow. Yeah. Mental health care workers, they typically don't earn as much as medical professionals, right? Specifically on the reimbursement side for um, our system set up for providers to be reimbursed by insurance, Mm -hmm. um, the rate of reimbursement is typically lower on the mental health side than in other um, areas for other services. How much is compensation at play then in this shortage? Um, I I think it's a real factor. I think that um, it both contributes to the individual uh, ability to stay in a particular particular role, as well as the ability for the broader system to incentivize growth. Yeah, I mean, and we we got to face it. This is a, a difficult frontline job, right? It's it's a highly stressful environment. How much of it is either stigma surrounding addiction or, or mental illness, 
or fearing that emotional toll that doing this job can take? I, I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, we know that this is an essential workforce. Um, being able to provide mental health services, crisis or otherwise, is essential within our society. Mm-hmm. We don't always see what it looks like to have these jobs in popular culture and in kind of broader, our broader collective. We may not really know what this work looks like. And so um, folks don't tend to see that then as a pipeline. I think there's also the real emphasis on crisis work right now, which takes up a, a, a specific um, skill set, um, potentially a particular you know person who's interested in doing that crisis work. But that is not the only service that's needed in our mental health crisis continuum. So we really have to see the opportunities that exist um, to, to support folks. And, and the system needs to incentivize all of the workers within this broad workforce to, to come into the field to build that pipeline and then um, provide the, the resources that are required to keep them there. Yeah. As you, you mentioned, we are seeing a lot of interlocking crises, right? The migrant and housing crisis, a rising death rate from opioid overdoses, people still dealing with burnout from the pandemic and so much more. So just talk more about how all of that really just exacerbates the need for mental health care for so many people right now. Because, I mean, stigma or not, before, there's a lot more people jumping on that bandwagon now. And and that's just it. We... It is quite clear that the, the crisis, the mental health crisis in our society has grown. The need for services has grown. Um, we, whether it be from youth, um, which is kind of a demonstrated area where the need continues to, to grow and be high, all the way through the interlocking crises that, that you name. I think that there's all of those things are really, um, are really coming to the forefront and showing us that we need long-term solutions to our mental health workforce, um, as well as short-term solutions. What concerns you most about the shortage we're seeing? I am concerned that, you know, folks won't be able to get to the care and resources that they need. Um, we at NAMI Chicago see every day folks calling into our helpline looking for support in navigating the mental health system. And we um, do a lot to make those connections and also hold people when an appointment may be, for, may be further away than needed. But certainly the biggest issue here is addressing and meeting the need that, that we see day to day. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking with Jen McGowan-Tomkey, who's COO of NAMI Chicago. We're discussing the shortage of mental health care workers here in Illinois and what is being done to address it on the state level. There are legislative efforts to address this, as I mentioned earlier. So last year, the governor signed a law to uh, increase the behavioral health workforce. So, Jen, fill us in on that law and, and how things are going. Yes, I, this was a, a kind of a multi-year effort to kind of bring the behavioral health workforce needs to uh, the forefront. And um, Governor Pritzker, as you mentioned, signed a bill to establish a behavioral health workforce in Illinois. Um, and that that uh, was um, 
preceded by a report um, from a number of stakeholders really looking at the challenges around um, workforce in Illinois and what some of the long-term solutions are. So the behavioral health workforce is really intended to um, collect information and data that we don't have right now about um, the behavioral health workforce Mm -hmm. and build solutions to um, bring more folks into the pipeline and maintain um, those workers. Yeah. Can you do me a favor? Explain the difference for us between behavioral and mental health. Sure. Uh, Behavioral health uh, tends to be a term that's broadly encompassing of mental health services across the continuum, as well as um, substance use services across the continuum of treatment. I see. So is, is there a difference in the folks who work in those spaces or can it be sort of used interchangeably? Pretty interchangeably in terms of, you know, who the professionals are encompasses, you know, what we think of as uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, addiction recovery coaches, all of those pieces, all of those professions um, can fall under that umbrella. Yeah. There's also a new behavioral workforce center here in Illinois. What's going on there? It's um, been recently established, the um, Behavioral Health Workforce Center. Um, they, they're um, seated at the um, Southern, Southern Illinois University um, as a university partner, and they're really working towards um, addressing uh, gaps in data and understanding around the behavioral health workforce, as well as um, making recommendations and implementing solutions for long-term sustainability. Given all that we've talked about, I'm curious how you get folks interested in this field. I mean, where do you begin? I know know a few people personally who uh, were working in this space, and I know about half who have dropped off just because of burnout, right? Yeah. Well, I think that what we need to do is solve some of those problems related to burnout. We have to make this um, this work um, more accessible to folks and also um, it provide the resources necessary to help support people in this field. I think a lot of folks um, in this space are helpers and they really want to support their community and support um, the, the mental health needs of our society at large. And, and we make it really challenging with the um, lack of resources that are often um, put into the system. Now, we, I, I think the solutions that we've talked about show that there are, is real interest mm-hmm. and um, real action towards investment in building this, this workforce. But I think we have to take seriously the um, implications of how hard it is to, um, to do this work every day. And those solutions may um, be individual, uh, you know, related to what that person needs, but there are also strategies around workforce wellness that we um, can really put at the forefront to support this workforce. Yeah, workforce wellness. Those are key words there. You, you mentioned making the work more accessible to folks. What did you mean by that? Uh, certainly in terms of um, uh, opportunities for uh, supporting schooling, loan repayment, educational um, grants and dollars that support um, getting folks into into the pipeline. I think we know in other areas of the health profession some of the strategies that have been used that um, allow folks to feel less of a financial burden to go to school for the, for these different professions. I get the other piece here is that 
um, there is a workforce of peers, of folks who um, have their own lived experience on their mental health journey mm-hmm. that are um, really uh, interested and want to provide support for other folks in the community. And so we have to think again about the continuum of the worker that supports in this system. How long have you been working in this space? Um, I've been at NAMI for about seven and a half years. Wow. And working in, in mental health? Yes. For that period of time as well? Yep. Yep, for that period of time. So, I mean, what would you say, Jen, is is your greatest reward then? At the end of the day, when all is said and done with the work that you do every day? I, um, this for me is about the opportunity to help others and help our community and really see folks who call us on the helpline step up with so much courage and so much bravery um, to both talk about their experience and to seek support. Mm -hmm. I am so lucky even in my role as COO to have a really strong connection with the folks who call us and connect with us for service. And that really keeps me motivated. Yeah. Remind us of NAMI's hotline and and the service that uh, folks can get. NAMI Chicago's hotline or helpline is open Monday through Friday, 9 to 8 p.m. and Saturdays and Sundays, 9 to 5 at 833-NAMI-SHI. That's N-A-M-I-C-H-I. Um, call us for any support um, with mental health services or even just to talk. We are here. That's Jen mcgowan Tomkey, who's COO of NAMI Chicago. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've been talking about the shortage of mental health workers in Illinois. So now let's hear about some strategies of supporting mental health workers that could help in retaining and recruiting staff. Edwin Martinez is the co-founder and executive director of Centro Sonar, a community health center providing mental health services to under and uninsured Southwest Side residents. Welcome, Edwin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Neha Gupta is Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs and the Division Chief of Integrated Behavioral Health in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences over at Rush University Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Gupta. Thank you for having me. So first, Edwin, in your view, I mean, how does the current system of of pay and caseload contribute to the shortage that we're seeing? I think it has a huge effect. I mean, we're working in a medicalized system around mental health care, so a lot has to do with productivity and what you can bill for. Um, when you have a workforce that has, and again, I'm coming from an outpatient uh, service lens, right? When you have a productivity level of 34 hours on a weekly basis, how can you really have a trauma-informed practice for your for your own staff and be in a position to retain staff when you're, in a sense, constantly having to bill, having to provide direct services, and not really having a time to rest? Those are the things that... I would say we have to be realistic around how do we retain staff, what is our ability as an organization to really invest, provide quality benefits, but also create a really solid work and life balance as well. Yeah, dig more into what you were just talking about for, for folks who aren't familiar. Like, w- Describe what caseloads and, mm-hmm. and productive hours yeah. are and then talk more about morale. What, yeah, I would say like... Again, for us at Centro Center, we're trying to do things a lot differently in terms of what our caseload is. As an outpatient clinician in the past and even bringing on clinicians from that field, you have a 34 to 36 hour productivity level, which means you have around 50 clients that you have to provide services to. 50, five zero. So, yeah, 50. So in terms of like just billable hours, what can you bill for? But also the the outside work needed to be able to contact families, to be able to provide those direct services. So 
30, 34, 36 hours of billable services. That does not does that does not quantify also the external hours needed to be able to coordinate those services as well. So for it just us, sounds like a lot. Yeah, so for us, we t- we're taking a drastic change in terms of what the caseload is. So on average, our caseload for our clinicians was 20 to 25. That's a huge difference to what is basically half of what typically is seen in outpatient. Mm-hmm. But you're able to provide quality of care. You're able to provide multiple sessions on a weekly basis, right, to be able to cater to your 20 to 25 caseload. And at the end of the day, it leads to a stronger level of morale in addition to the, po- the, the benefits and the work-life balance you're providing to your clinicians. You know, Dr. Gupta, at the end of the day, mental health professionals, they're people. They're people too, right? right? Uh, They're living with the stressors of the world, all of the things that, you know, annoy me when I go into my therapy session. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they're annoying you too, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you see anxiety and and stress affecting providers? Sure. Um, It's very much affecting providers, especially throughout the pandemic, I think. Um, I think mental health was one of the services that really kept going and, if anything, got more and more needed. Mm -hmm. And especially since we can provide mental health services via telehealth and telephone and video uh, visits um, because of the nature of what we're doing in in, uh, mental health, I think that that made it so that the... um, the demand kind of outpaced the supply of of what what mental health uh, practitioners clinicians were able to provide yeah and then edwin what about providers who are black or indigenous or other people of color i mean it's it's a scarcity right so for us at centro sanar we've made it a point to be able to address stigma by looking at access issues around representation as well so when we're talking about mental health we're talking about bipoc clinicians and it's especially important for an organization to really look at systemically how they support BIPOC clinicians, especially around power, especially around benefits, but also just being realistic that we're often talking about people that work and live in the community. So, uh, yes, being able to talk to somebody about very about their vicarious trauma, but being also realistic around and create supportive environments and training right for the clinicians to be able to remain in the communities that they're also from as well. Mm-hmm. How does this lead to burnout, Dr. Gupta? Have you seen people leave the field? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that it it tends to be that the the intensity of mental health conditions, behavioral health conditions, for um, you know it it requires that there's ideally a team of of providers taking care of a patient. So it to me it comes down to the primary care provider. Then there's the you know, psychiatrist or the and the counseling team. But in order, I think, to to provide excellent care, there should be um, wraparound services with licensed clinical social workers, with case managers. And without that team approach, I think that one clinician, it's just impossible for one person to be able to do all of it. I can imagine. I I mean, I want to understand the different models that you two work with uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more. So Edwin, describe community health and, and Center Sonar's model in particular. Yeah, so we wanted to focus on how can we mental health how can mental health transition from a reactionary mindset to a more preventative mindset where we are speaking about mental health services when it's not a crisis. Right. Right. When there's not a homicide, when there's not a SAS call, when there's a space in so Center Sonar, we wanted we created created it with community involvement, right? So even though we don't have a multidisciplinary approach, our role is around 
how do we layer our approach so that mental health is not only provided in individual settings, but it's provided in group settings, it's provided in family-based settings, it's provided to really center on couples and be more preventative than reactionary in our point. But at the end of the day, also centering centering access around retainment of staff, because what we've seen is that if you retain staff, if you develop staff, if you provide quality supervision and care for your staff, you're also able to tackle issues around stigma around mental health. Yeah, and you're you're serving four Southwest Side neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? Little Village, Bryant Park, Gage Park, and Back of the Yards, and so, primarily folks who are under or uninsured. Mm-hmm. Which is a, which is again like a which we want to emphasize because you're mostly working with complex trauma, which is a higher level of care that you need quality supervision, quality staff, right? And we want to be able to put that in the forefront because our community has also been not just because of the pandemic, right, like histor- has historically been impacted by disenfranchisement and disinvestment within mental health care, as, uh, specifically in regards to the closing of mental health clinics and the expansion of health care, right? So what does that really mean for our community? Uh, our community deserves and requires, right, consistent consistent and high-quality mm-hmm. care. Yeah. Dr. Gupta, you're working within a medical system. So, I mean, who are you serving and, and what conditions are you treating? Sure. So I... I Right. I'm, I'm from the Rush University Medical Center, and the program that I've developed um, throughout the, the past seven years is the collaborative care program. So what we do, it, it did help that I'm also a primary care provider, I'm dual boarded. So okay. in my um, when I was building this program back uh, alongside social work leadership um, back in 2016, um, we were able to pilot this from um, a a primary care clinic that I was sitting in and seeing patients in. Mm. So it was really important to build this off of the um, the the standards of care and practice performance measures that primary care providers are expected to do. And that's the depression screen that should mm. be asked once a year. So we kind of grew on that. And so we, we really went into each clinic. We've expanded greatly over the years. Um, but we went into each practice. This can be, an, this can be a federally qualified healthcare center. This can be a, a hospital-based practice. But a team of us, me being the psychiatrist, a social work leader, who is also known as the behavioral health care manager in this model, um, a health record uh, tech lead, teamed with the medical assistants in the practice and also the primary care providers on how to ask the questions about depression and how to screen. And from there, we really built in this pathway into the health record, which allows a referral to a social worker who calls the patient within seven days. Mm -hmm. That social worker is part of a broader team called the collaborative care team that consists of a psychiatric consultant, a patient care registry, and of course, the patient, the social worker, and then the primary care provider. So we're this team and the social workers call the patient every month and they repeat their their, their assessments. For us, it's the PHQ-9 for depression. And we're tracking to see if the patients are getting better. And they have to speak with the psychiatrist, psychiatric consultant every week uh, to go over their caseload. I see. So the whole point of this model is to just make sure that patients don't fall through the cracks and to make sure that they're getting better. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about addressing burnout among mental health providers and strategies of retaining staff and helping practitioners and healers provide better services. And we're talking with Edwin Martinez, who's co-founder and executive director of Centro Sanar. That's a community health center providing mental health services to primarily under and uninsured Southwest Side residents. And Dr. Neha Gupta, who's vice chair of psychiatry 
and internal medicine physician at Rush University Medical Center. So I, I want to address, uh, Edwin, the, the narrative around stigma, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the reason why people might not seek care or seek a profession mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. mental health, right? They might not want to go see the therapist mm-hmm. or do the job. Uh, mainstream discourse often attaches a perceived stigma to communities of color. Mm-hmm. You see it a little bit differently? Yes, I, I, see, it, I see it differently, both in my personal experience in being a a front-level clinician in communities of color, but also in doing the research, right? I I think of the surveys and the collection of data that we've done for the collaborative community wellness around what are the top four, what are the top five reasons for folks to not access mental health care and stigma, even as we intersect with social economic status, with race, like stigma ended up being third or fifth on the reasons to not seek mental health care the number one issue was around access mm-hmm. do i have access do i have insurance is that provider even local right so as we dig down further into the research it turned out that in terms of access in terms of having clinicians not even clinicians of color just clinicians in communities of color it was in our in our specific catchment area is per capita is like 0.03 per thousand people so what can access really look like and that's that's an area where we want to be able to Right, address that, address access, address, address culturally attuned practices, right, mm-hmm. so that we can get it to get into the nitty gritty around stigma and access. But for us at Synthesanad, the bulk of our clients come from word of mouth, right? So seventy percent, sixty-five to seventy percent come from people talking about mental health care. People, people are talking about it now. Yeah. So it's so for us and that research that was from the collaborative community wellness that was eight years ago to ten years ago. And since there's a non stories around, yes, if we focus on quality of care, if we will focus on retention of staff, people are going to talk about their provider. People are going to refer, like, hey, my therapist did a really good job. I think you should talk to them as well. Mm. And that, and my therapist can speak your language. My my therapist also looks like us and is from the community that they're from. Mm-hmm. That is a huge amount of power that can challenge a narrative around what we see as a primary a barrier for folks around stigma. Yeah, you had some thoughts, Dr. Gupta? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think, um, Edwin, to me, that that's all the more reason um, that we want to bring um, universal depression screens into primary care settings because the the mandate really is that everyone is asked these questions for depression at their preventative health visit. So regardless of their insurance or their uh, demographic factors, um, this this is the norm mm-hmm. before, um, you know, and it has to be done. From there, then um, you're able to triage to services such as your fantastic program. Um, but I think that's why it's very important to have a population health model where everybody is asked the, um, the crucial questions about mental health. Yeah, and I think of like, uh, what what can we do in the future, right? Like so, PHQ nines again as a therapist, right? Like th- that is an assessment tool that has been with us for a long period of time, and I, and how do we transition to be to be, to be more culturally attuned, but also mm-hmm. assess for overall wellness, mm-hmm. right? Because if you make it about anxiety, and even like talking about depression, talking about anxiety, that that often creates a barrier for folks, right? So instead of just talking about overall wellness, overall wellness screenings that we can really talk about a non-medicalized approach, right, right to mental health care. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think of our model around, we're not just talking about accessing mental health care at a hospital or at mm-hmm. a clinic. We are embedded in community-based settings, so it's not yeah. threatening. So an it. overall wellness conversation mm-hmm. opens it up yeah. much more, opens up the dialogue. Absolutely. Even, for, even filing for your TANF, your insurance card, like I think of like COVID. 
that has impacted, right? Like your household, has anybody, has your, has your size of your household decreased? That is a big question to ask, right? And, it, and a lot of our work has been around training other organizations to be trauma-informed because of those reasons as well. Yeah, and the model you were talking about, Dr. Gupta, you know, with, with um, uh, I'm wondering if, if, thinking about stress and having that huge impact on our physical health, often these two realms, they're, they're siloed, Mm-hmm. Does the model help sort of bring everything together? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the cornerstone of a model like this is is honestly the behavioral health care manager in our in our system. It's yeah. a licensed clinical social worker. Those depression screenings. The, yes, but really the patient care registry at the patient, but truly the social worker is everything because in our in our initial outreach to the patient, the social worker is really doing a triage assessment just to really ask the patient how they're doing and if they have barriers to their care, really focusing on social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I think that's crucial in these programs is mm-hmm. really to ask the patients about what their barriers are and um, how, how we can help. I mean, final thoughts from both of you on just strategies that you want to see pursued to address burnout? You first, Edwin. I mean, the first part is pay, right? Pay, caseload. Um, I think we also work in, I represent a not-for-profit, right? So that that is building its its system to charge for insurance, to, uh, to take on state funding. And it, a lot of it also has to deal with like where is community is community voice up front. Yeah. Right. And not just pay transparency around pay. Yeah. Transparency around pay being in a position again, you're working with uh, a staff, right? And speaking for BIPOC clinicians, right? You're dealing with staff that have are experiencing vicarious trauma from their for their own clients. You have to have a a, a system in place that is collaborative, mm-hmm. that is transparent where you're speaking up their voices, right? You're speaking up your clients' voices and you're putting that to heart. Uh, and then we've been successful in that process, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we're a young organization, we haven't had any staff turner since we started. But you're also right. making a lot of changes along the way, right? Mm-hmm. In- including the way you do supervision mm-hmm. to yeah. support your staff. So, like, again, we're working in communities of, communities of color that have impact, been impacted by complex drama or systemic violence. You have to really create an environment where your staff, your BIPOC staff specifically, are have the ability to be brave and safe. And that means being creative, even with your limited resources, around supervision. What did you all do? We divided it. So, for example, myself, having the being the executive director, I have hiring and firing power. I have to be aware of my own power as I'm holding space and building up my team's skill set. So, those those conversations are often combined in other outpatient settings around skill development and hiring, firing, and your administrative duties. It's very difficult to build up that skill set. And doing again, these these are this is getting to the weeds, but the those are the things that retain staff, even though your pay scale maybe, you know, need definitely needs like increase, right? But we are working with limited resources in our current system. But how do we be creative so that we can retain staff, build a safe and healthy environment so that especially BIPOC clinicians that are in the field feel feel safe and feel comfortable, but also feel heard at the end of the day. Yeah. Your strategies, Dr. Gupta, you know, I mean, we, we, we want to address this burnout. Yeah, I mean, I, I really could, couldn't say it better than Edwin. I mean, I echo what, what you said here. I just tie, I just add on to that that really it, it, we just need to um, take some of the onus on our mental, off of our mental health 
teams and put the um, some of the ownership on the primary services. So um, even in our underserved communities, there are federally qualified health care centers that, that should be um, and, and um, are actually quite enthusiastic about collaborating with mental health teams so that the primary can really hold depression care or any, you know, mental health care. But I think it needs to be much more collaborative. I think that it should not be a siloed, two siloed fields between primary care and um, mental health and behavioral health. I think that we should um, we should all be helping each other so that we all of us can sleep at night. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. That's Dr. Neha Gupta of Rush University Medical Center and Edwin Martinez, executive director of Central Center. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you.